turn in the Old Testament to the book of Jonah. It's page 775 in these Bibles in the pews. This summer we have been um, studying the book of Jonah, and now we come to the final chapter of this uh, rather brief book. In chapter 3, spiritual awakening has come to Nineveh. The city of perhaps as many as three-quarters of a million people have heard the gospel or have heard the prophet Jonah preach, and they have believed. And now we come to chapter 4, and this is the happens in the aftermath of that great awakening. Jonah chapter 4, beginning in verse 1. Hear God's word. But it displeased Jonah exceedingly. Uh, It is the fact that Nineveh had repented, and God was not going to bring judgment on them. And he was angry, and he prayed to the Lord and said, O Lord, is not this what I said when I was yet in my, own, in my country? That is why I made haste to flee to Tarshish. For I knew that you are a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love, and relenting from disaster. Therefore now, O Lord, please take my life from me, For it is better for me to die than to live. And the Lord said, Do you do well to be angry? Jonah went out of the city and sat to the east of the city and made a booth for himself there. He sat under it in the shade till he should see what would become of the city. Now the Lord God appointed a plant and made it come up over Jonah that it might be a shade over his head to save him from his discomfort. So Jonah was exceedingly glad because of the plant. But when dawn came up the next day, God appointed a worm that attacked the plant so that it withered. When the sun rose, God appointed a scorching east wind. And the sun beat down on the head of Jonah so that he was faint. And he asked that he might die and said, It is better for me to die than to live. But God said to Jonah, Do you do well to be angry for the plant? And he said, Yes, I do well to be angry, angry enough to die. And the Lord said, You pity the plant for which you did not labor, nor did you make it grow, which came into being in a night and perished in a night. And should not I pity Nineveh, that great city, in which there are more than 120,000 persons who do not know their right hand from their left, and also much cattle. So ends the reading of God's word. Jonah had preached. All had believed, from the least to the greatest. So it was not an awakening just among the poor underclass, but it was across all cultural and societal boundaries, from the weakest person on the street to the most powerful. The king himself had issued a decree for everyone to pray to God and to repent and to ask for mercy. It's the kind of awakening we would hope the Lord might allow us to witness at least once in a lifetime. Think of what would happen if all of central Georgia was converted at one time. Wouldn't that be fantastic? What if the main evangelist during that awakening saw such fruit. What do you think he would do? Well, I would imagine he would immediately post the statistics on his website. He would write home to the home office. There would be photos all over his Facebook page, probably with his arm around the king 
and now he was one of his prayer partners. But instead, Jonah is depressed. He's not only depressed, he's angry. And the word there is he burned with anger. He's furious. He is furious at what has happened. This has to be the most bewildering part of this entire story. At last, we are hearing from Jonah's own words why he had hightailed it to Tarshish. It was not because he feared the Assyrians. It was not because he feared failure on his part. He feared success. Even back then, before his experience of being in the fish, he knew God well enough to realize that the Lord's compassion toward Nineveh would trigger that city to repent and would allow her to escape God's wrath. He knew this was why God was sending a prophet to Nineveh with a message of doom. And Jonah hated the thought of it. He hates it so much so, it says in verse 1, that it displeased him exceedingly. He is not just a little mad or somewhat irritated. As I said, he is furious. Sinclair Ferguson is one of the uh, writers, one of the authors that has written on Jonah. He's got a little, just a little book about that long on Jonah. And I've been reading over that in preparation of these sermons. And he makes a point, it's just a side point, of how Jonah reacts now to what God has done or chosen not to do to Nineveh. And Ferguson, Sinclair Ferguson, says how we react is often a better thermometer of the spiritual condition of our hearts than how we act. How we react toward things that happen is a clearer indicator of the condition of our hearts than how we act. What he means by that is when you and I act, we carry out a plan. We may plan precisely something we are going to do. But when you react, that means your plan has gone awry and you have to respond now to what's happened. How I act may be that I plan to go to the parking lot and get in my car and drive a certain way. How I react is me in traffic. And the response can be very different. Young couples may say, we'd like to start a family, and we want to have children, and we plan to raise our children this way in the fear and nurture of the Lord. Then you have the children, and you're surrounded by these toddlers or these young people, and then you start to react. And it may be very different than the way you planned to act. And so Jonah is reacting. I remember what Douglas Kelly, who preached here years ago, he said, before he and his wife had four, son, four or five sons, he said, I had five sermons on child raising and no sons. Now I have five sons and no sermons. <laughs> Why did Jonah react with anger? Because he wanted Nineveh destroyed. For them to be spared and to receive the blessing of God was disturbing. So he prays, and we read his prayer in verses 2 and 3. And it prays, it sounds almost like a model prayer because he prays back to the Lord uh, God's word. We teach people to pray and I hope as you pray you learn to pray scripture. For example Psalm 23 in your prayers you can say Lord I thank you that you are my shepherd. I thank you that you will, will not cause me to want that you protect me that you lead me through the valley of the shadow of death and so forth. Well, Jonah is doing this. He is praying back to God scripture when he says, God, we, I know that you are full of grace and mercy, slow to anger, steadfast love. He is right. His theology is correct. He understands the nature of God. What he doesn't understand, though, are the passions of God, which is for the lost. 
These are the very things that God has revealed about himself. Let me tell you where that phrase comes from in verse 3, that I know you're a gracious God and merciful, so forth. It's mentioned about 12 times in the Old Testament. Where it originated was when God's people had um, made a golden calf and bowed down and worshipped it. God threatened to wipe them out and not to fulfill the promise to bring them into the promised land. Moses pleads with God to change his mind. God does. The emboldened Moses then asks for something more, something personal. He says, God, please show me your glory. That's in Exodus 33. Well, God's answer back to him is that he promises he will let him glimpse at all his goodness and to hear him proclaim his name. And God says, I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious. I will show mercy on whom I will show mercy. And then he does something very strange. He puts Moses in the crevice of a rock. He passes before him. And while while he's doing so, Moses hears these words uh, that that I, the Lord... God am a merciful God and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. That's Exodus 34. Jonah knows these words. He remembers these words. And he doesn't like what they say. He doesn't like. He doesn't agree with the fact of how God does things. Jonah is finding fault with God. He's finding fault with him because he really is not as Jonah has imagined him to be. One commentator said it was not simply that Jonah could not bring himself to appreciate Nineveh, rather to a shocking extent, he could not stand God. So Jonah's theology is correct, but his heart is wrong. And so he expresses a death wish. He says, it'd be better for me to die. Just, I'd rather not even be alive if this is the way things are going to be. Well, what can we learn from this, from his attitude? It's possible to be in the very center of God's blessing and his grace and his mercy where he is pouring that out and still desire to be elsewhere, or like Jonah, nowhere. Jonah was caught between his own self-will and God's plan. And the more Jonah pushed, the more God pressed. He was bound to remain miserable as long as he was caught up in his own designs. And so God asked him a question. If you're a parent here and you have young children and they are acting like Jonah is acting now, very childishly, not childlike, but childishly, and we see this is what's happening with Jonah. Sometimes uh, a question carefully asked can uh, get a response. And God says, do you have a reason to be angry? One translator puts it, Are you sure you have gauged this situation correctly, Jonah? God is saying, Are you envious of my goodness that's been shown to others? See, so much of our misery and I think our problems come not from the circumstances, but how we perceive those circumstances. Some of us can go through identical circumstances. Five of you here could. And four may be fine, and the fifth person may be angry and furious and blame it all on the circumstance, but the others don't respond the same way. And so we can think, if only this hadn't happened, if I did this, if only he had not done that, or she had not done that, or he not said that. Well, here in the midst of God's blessing and his grace and his mercy, Jonah's attitude is wrong, and he is miserable. He is God's man. He is God's prophet at that time. 
yet we see more misery in him than the sailors who had feared for their lives on the ship, than the captain who had called on everyone to pray, than the people in Nineveh who'd been under God's judgment, and even the king of Nineveh. They seem to be doing well now, and Jonah, the prophet, is miserable. Because I think our circumstances typically just reveal what's in our hearts. If you try and have a battle of the wills with God, you will lose. You will not win. And Jonah doesn't. Don't fight with God. I'll let you apply that a, a thousand different ways in your life. Don't fight with Him. You will only be miserable and you will lose. And that's what happens with Jonah. So we go on to verses 5 to 9 that leads up to the end of the, the book. He's acting very childishly. And so he goes and sits east of the city. And perhaps he's thinking, well, maybe, maybe that God sees how upset I am. Maybe he'll go ahead now and destroy the city. So he's sitting out there watching just to see what's going to happen. You ever watch a replay of a football game? You know, they have these classics on ESPN. And you know how the game turned out, but maybe you're just hoping this time it will be different. But it's all right. It was recorded years ago. And you're thinking, maybe this time. Well, Jonah's out there, and he's watching, and he's waiting, and he builds this little tent, tent, booth, something, some kind of little shelter. And it provides some shade, and it's very hot. And verse 6 tells us that, that God provides a plant to provide this shade over Jonah. And in the entire book, this is the only time Jonah's happy. It says, even it said, as it had said, he was exceedingly angry. Now it says he's exceedingly glad. So he's glad because of the plant. He's got his shade. And so he's happy and he's watching, looking down on this large city. God is blessing Jonah. He's enjoying the blessings of God. The vine was a blessing. It's a demonstration of God's care. What is God doing by appointing this plant? He is preparing Jonah for a very special object lesson because the plant has made Jonah very happy, and he has his eyes on that which brings him pleasure. Well, early the next morning, God appoints a worm to destroy the plant. And verse 7 tells us that is indeed what happens. And then in verse 8, Jonah has lost his shade. He has lost his comfort. The heat is back, and so is his anger. The heat is back in more ways than one, and he is fired up again. Now, if you and I could have shown up on the scene and wanted to counsel our brother Jonah, probably we would have grabbed him by the shoulders and said, Jonah, don't you see? Don't you see what God is doing through all these events? He is sovereignly trying to teach you something. I mean, think back in the book. Four times the verb appointed is used in the book of Jonah. It says God appointed the great fish. He appointed the plant. He appointed the worm. And now he appoints the wind that had come. These are all providential acts of God intended to draw Jonah back into fellowship with himself. And we would say, don't. Fight it, Jonah. Well, God asked him in verse 9, Do you have good reason to be angry about the plant? And Jonah said, Oh, yes, I do well to be angry, angry enough to die. And it's almost as though in these closing verses, at this point, Jonah is shouting. You almost get the impression he's shouting at God. 
And at that moment, God speaks to his conscience one last time in the last two verses. And he says, you pity the plant for which you did not labor. Jonah hadn't planted the plant. Jonah didn't cause it to grow. You did not make it grow, which came into being in a night and perished in a night. And should I not pity Nineveh, that great city in which there are more than 120,000 persons who do not know their right hand from their left and also much cattle? Well, you've heard me mention that perhaps as many as three-quarters of a million people lived in Nineveh. And so this 120,000 people typically is, con- is translated as not knowing their right from the left as far as talking about little children, that there may have been 120,000 that little infants and young toddlers that would not have known even their right hand from the left. But despite all the picture lessons now that God has given to Jonah, he's not yet learned the most important lesson, the main lesson, that the immortal souls of men and women are the most important thing that there is to God. Jonah was worked up to a screaming point to the loss of a plant and the discomfort of the heat on his head. And he is so, his vision is so blurred at this point that he has fallen in love with a plant, he's made an idol out of it, so to speak, and he has missed the whole ministry that has taken place. God had made those people in Nineveh. God had loved those people in Nineveh. And Jonah was angry when God had compassion on them. Verse 11 is the end. I just read it. And it's an unanswered question. From all we can tell, Jonah is the one who wrote the book of Jonah. And it seems as though the literary style at the very end is to pose a question so that the reader has the same question come to us that that went to Jonah. Should God not pity the nations? Should God not have compassion on them when they know nothing? And so we are left to struggle ourselves with the ending and to search our own souls to see if we can view God's forgiveness the way God does. And so we are prompted by the ending to compare our hearts with the heart of Jonah and with the heart of God. Jonah is selfish. He's reacting with anger over his discomfort and the fact that God had shown mercy to others. But you and I, as recipients of God's grace, assuming you come to know Christ if you are here today, we must always fight the temptation to be calloused and indifferent toward those who have yet to hear the gospel. It's so easy to do, to think, well, I've got God's blessing in my life and his blessings on my family. That's all that matters. That's all that matters. And as far as these, those others out there, different skin color, different language, different political system in another part of the world or whatever, I really could care less. All through Scripture, we know of God's love for the nations. Jonah knew this. He knew of the covenant that had been made with Abraham in Genesis 12. God made that covenant with him and said, In you all the families of the earth will be blessed. Jonah knew that. Jonah knew that God's plan was not just for the nation of Israel. It was to reach the nations. The scary thing, and probably Jonah knew, is his own nation was unrepentant at this time. And here are the repentant Gentiles, the foreigners, and they are experiencing the blessing of God. Psalm 66 says, Shout for joy to God, all the earth. Psalm 67, may God be gracious to us and bless us and make his face shine upon us 
that your way may be known on the earth, your saving power among all nations. We say Psalm 100. Make a joyful noise to the Lord all the earth. Matthew 28 with the Great Commission, Jesus saying, Go therefore and make disciples of all nations. And then we fast forward to the end of time. We see it in the book of Revelation, chapter 5. Speaking of Jesus, it says, You were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. God loves the nations of the world. There is not an individual on the planet for whom Psalm 139 is not true. That God wove that person together in their mother's womb. That that person is fearfully and wonderfully made. And God knows their thoughts from afar, even before they thank them. It's what's on God's heart, on our heart, and on your heart. You say, well, how, what can I do? How, how do I know? Well, I think even something as small as praying for the unreached people. Now, the unreached peoples of the world. You may know the name William Carey. William Carey lived about 200 years ago. At that time, he was a shoe repairman in England. And as a shoe repairman, he began to be concerned about the world's unreached peoples, those especially that had been cut off from the gospel. And what he would do as he worked at his table pounding shoes, he put a large map of the world on the wall in front of him. And as he worked, he would pray for the salvation of people in distant lands. William Carey went on and he became the father of modern missions. Through his influence, Britain's first missionary society was formed. And he went as a missionary to India where he spent 42 years. And he and his co-workers translated the entire Bible into 25 languages. And then they added the New Testament into 40 languages. Many books have been written about William Carey, but to the best of my knowledge, there's not a single book that's been written about his bedridden, crippled sister. See, William Carey had a sister back home, and every week he would write to her about the details of the work in India, and he would tell her about the problems, and hour after hour, and week after week, and day after day, for 50 years, she from her bed, would lift up those concerns in prayer. So I wonder who is responsible, humanly speaking, for the success of William Carey's ministry. You can have a worldwide impact praying for others. Amy Carmichael, many of you know that name. She was a missionary in India for 55 years. Amy Carmichael was born in Ireland to a wealthy family in 1867. And in her 20s, she received a call to mission service. She served for a little while in Japan and then spent the rest of her years in India. And she would write poetry. I've got a book of the poems of Amy Carmichael. And there's one poem that I came across years ago that's influenced many people, and it's called Make Me Thy Fuel. It's a strong challenge, but does not. It's a challenge because it urges us not to look at ourselves and our comfort, but points us to Christ and wanting to serve Him. I'm not a poet, but I'll seek to read this to you. Make me thy fuel. From prayer that asks that I may be sheltered from winds that beat on thee, from fearing when I should aspire, from faltering when I should climb higher. From silken self, O captain free, thy soldier who would follow thee. From subtle love of softening things, from easy choices, weakenings, 
Not thus our spirits fortified. Not this way went the crucified. From all that dims thy calvary, O Lamb of God, deliver me. Give me the love that leads the way, the faith that nothing can dismay. The hope no disappointments tire, the passion that will burn like fire. Let me not sink to be a clod. Make me thy fuel, flame of God. Let's pray together. Our Father, we we thank you that your heart is for the nations. We thank you for your grace and your mercy and even how you dealt with Jonah in grace and mercy. Uh, Thank you for dealing with us the same way. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.